1: guys welcome to the borgo pass horror podcast thank you much for coming by i hope you enjoy yourself my name is scott kelly from boston joined by i'm jim towns coming to you from los angeles so we got an east coast boy and a west coast boy meeting somewhere in the middle having some fun with universal horror if you listen to our first podcast we made the promise that we're not just hitting the hits we're not just hitting the heavy hitters um we're going to be you know digging through the weeds a little bit you know touching all things horror and um you know some of the lesser-known gems and this is a great one certainly you're going to recognize the cast you may not have seen the movie but let's get into it so man-made monster filmed in 1941 starring lana latwell as dr paul Regis. and then of course lon cheney jr as dynamo dan the electrical man kind of a you know circus star or i don't know it was a, a freak show type He's, yeah, he's like a, he's like a
0: midway performer in it. So it's like someplace you'd go down on the boardwalk and see, you know, play the games and then get your get your weight guessed and stuff. I think he. He works on that kind of thing. But but it also sounds like in the film, he's he's traveling with the group. So maybe it's a maybe it's a seasonal kind of troop of people that yeah. have a season like like I guess the best modern example, maybe would be like a renaissance fair traveling. Yeah, yeah exactly. you have the jugglers traveling and the show. Sword swallowers and the people that give you the turkey leg and stuff. I think I think, <laughs> I think it, it, to a modern, maybe a younger audience who hasn't seen a lot of older films, that that's our best analogy.
1: So Lon Chaney, Don Dan, is the uh, electrical man he's capable of taking, you know, at least early on, at least on this piece of the show, um, very low volts of electricity and, and staying unharmed. Samuel Hines is Dr. John Lawrence. And, you know, I saw him uh, really quick as I started the film and recognized him, of course, in um, or from The Raven, which is a, a film I think, you know, you and I will do at some point with oh, yeah. uh, Lugosi and Koloff. But, you know, recognized him as um, Judge Thatcher. But then, of course, totally slipped my mind, played the part of Par Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful
0: Life. He, he's, yeah. he's America's ideal dad, right? I mean, he's just it's funny that he did some of these these real shocker films because he and, you know, he's a working mm-hmm. actor and he, he took the roles they were given him if he was i don't know if he was part of you know in, in with universal or, or if he loaned out but um but it's so funny that yeah i mean he's in even if they don't know his name they know him as pa bailey as jimmy Stewart's dad in it's a wonderful life um which we all think of as this really wholesome positive uh christmas movie and then you watch it again and you you always forget that the second half of it is dark as heck it is it's quite kind of dark. noir and and ugly and yeah it's an interesting uh you can almost do an episode on it if it was a universal film but anyway yeah it's uh sam hines who who brings like uh we'll get into it more but i, I always think he brings um, legitimacy. He's one of those actors that he's such a innately sympathetic character that you're always going to be on that guy's side.
1: He is. Yeah. Very warm. Again, like you said, very easy to get on his side. And Nigel is uh, June Lawrence's daughter, Frank Abertson as the reporter, Mike Adams. I'm sorry, Mark Adams, who starts digging into um, a story a bit later on in the film, Uh, directed by George Wagner, who you know, I always like to do a little bit of research if I don't know, you know, either a star of the movie or a director or producer try to do kind of dig into them and see you know work that they've done before and i'm not sure if you know George, but I think you and I probably have seen some of his work. Do you know George at all? And if you don't, I, I'm going to drop some some pretty cool knowledge on you. You know, I didn't I didn't do a whole lot of research on George. I just know that this was the film
0: that that he and Chaney did first and before Universal gave them The Wolfman. So this was their, I don't know if it was their audition piece together, but it it, it was, as far as I can tell, their first
1: pairing. Am I right? I think so, yeah. I don't okay. believe they had worked together before, but certainly, you know, had been paired up, like you said, with The Wolfman, and I think a couple mm-hmm. of other times. But what I was thinking of is he actually directed 10 episodes of a Batman, the old 1966. Oh, did he? Yeah. so he, oh, so his- he, he goes on and
0: does Batman and stuff, which is interesting because one of our other films we're going to talk about in this series uh, has a
1: lot of connections to Batman. So that's an interesting... Yeah, went from uh, horror to, to uh, directing... Uh, Adam West and Burt Ward in uh, in Batman sixty six. So he just he just learned to turn that camera forty
0: five degrees on an angle, right? So fight crazy fight scenes. <laughs> so that's very great. versatile that's a, guy. That's a, that's a neat. Uh, you know the the thing I I'm always I always remark about the directors and filmmakers and writers that that we we talk about on the series is you know as as a writer and filmmaker myself I've done five features I think at this point in the last gosh twenty years uh, which which you know is average maybe a film every couple of years you get into these directors and there's these directors that have. That they directed 120 movies in their career.
1: It's amazing. <laughs> they they do one sh- every
0: three weeks, and then they they turn around and get assigned a new one because they, it worked on an assembly line fashion. Just films are not made in
1: that manner anymore. It's, no, it's and, fascinating. That. To, absolutely. And actors, too. I mean, just doing research for, you yeah. know, just this podcast in general, these 1920s, 30s, 40s, these actors and actresses, they would bang out multiple, I mean, four, five, six movies a year. I mean, especially oh, sure. Cheney, once he gets rolling with this role yeah. Through the 40s, I mean, he's got between I'd say 40 and 43, 44, you know, anybody can take a look at his filmography, incredible amount of work. Well, you know, so many of the actors
0: were paid on a salary basis by the studios, right? So they're, whether they're working or not, they are being paid in a weekly wage. And I can only assume that, it, which which does not happen anymore, obviously, almost every actor is what you would call a, a freelancer now in, in, in the film industry. But you can understand the studio's perspective of like, well, we're paying all these people, we should be putting them in stuff. And that's why you'll see an actor who's like almost the, the co-star or the lead in one movie, a week or two, you know, a couple months later, they're playing a reporter in a scene. There's no to 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 our idea of how Hollywood works now. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's it's just Universal or RKO or some other studio getting their bucks worth out of them. them Exactly right,
1: and you know what a what a great move and a good chance for the actors to stay busy during. I mean, this would be post depression time or just just past depression, but um, yeah, I mean, fantastic time to you know stay busy and and whatnot. So let's get right into the film. So um, obviously, as you may not know or if you haven't seen this film yet, we're going to be dealing with you know guy with some electrical, um, some interesting potential electrical issues. So right off the bat, we open up the movie with a rainstorm and there's a bus flying down the road. It brought me back to a Godzilla movie. Certainly a little, you know, matchbox. This is amazing model work. It's It's, it's it's, great.
0: You know, it's, does it look real? No. Does it look cool and atmospheric and creepy? Yes. And and also, I watched it. I don't remember. There's like, there's three or four shots of it. And I think it's maybe going over some of the same thing, but whatever model miniature set they built for this thing must have been 40 feet long or something. This wasn't just a half baked idea. They, they, Whoever, you know, in the model shop at Universal put some effort into this and, and you know, it's it's a neat shot. It's great with the tires and the electricity and stuff.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later on, but this is one of the, you know, more low budget films at Universal was the lowest budget of this particular year, but mm-hmm. overall of all the Universal films, one of the lowest budget films and, and you can kind of see that and we'll get into it throughout the movie, but absolutely right. You cannot knock the model work i mean you know That's you're looking fine. closely at the bus and like you said the electricity and just the foliage and the road you know, a lot of really nice detail and i'm sure folks not being paid a whole lot but you know just a, a labor of love and you know certainly a love for that craft so you have to mm-hmm. give them kudos for that you know opens up with bus hitting a electrical line Bus is fused with electricity and we've got you know multiple deaths and you know of course you know mr mccormick dan mccormick our own uh lon chaney is the lone survivor Next scene, we find him in a hospital, and mm-hmm. you know, he's up and about, and they're trying to they're trying to hold him back. Remind me a little bit of Frankenstein meets the Wolf Man. It's the Wolf Man, yeah, yeah.
0: Right? It's, it's Lon Chaney struggling a little more friendly this time, but yeah, <laughs> but, but trying to. Oh, oh, I'm okay, you know. Um, it's weirdly like the beginning of Unbreakable, the, yes. the Midnight film, yes. <laughs> where, where Bruce Willis is the only survivor of the plane crash or sure the train so. crash. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, so the doctor's trying to, you know, Mister McCormick, lay down. You know, you just got zapped right. by, you know, who knows how many watts of electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I want to. All I want to do is he's just such a playful, joyous man. He just wants to get out and, you know, get back in the world again. So for whatever reason, was not harmed by the electricity. And this is when we see Dr. Lawrence coming in for the first time, who we'll talk about later. So do you want to talk about kind of Dr. Lawrence and his background?
0: Yeah, well, well, Dr. Lawrence, uh, within the context of film, is is a uh, is very respected scientist in, in the fields of electrobiology. George Wagner actually did uh, rewrite the whole film under a pseudonym. So the film was actually... It was based on on an original story. But yeah, Dr. Lawrence comes, gives Dynamo Dan his card, says when he gets out of the hospital, he'd like to have him to come visit him because Dynamo Dan now is sort of out of work. The carnival circus, whatever, has has moved on while he's been convalescing, apparently. And so he's, he's sort of, you know, looking for a buck. Lon Chaney's character does find himself kind of at an impasse so he takes Dr. Lawrence up on his offer and visits him at his home, which is on the Moors or part of the Moors. They have a sign that says The Moors. And I'm not sure if it's like supposed to be a private community of some kind. I think Dr. Lawrence lives in a. It's hard. I don't, Scott, do they, they don't really ever discuss where the film is set, right? No, it's very,
1: it's very ambiguous. No, I'm, I'm with you, Jim. It's, yeah, The Moors. I always took it to mean, you know, some kind of a gated community or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I can't
0: tell if it's like upstate New York or Virginia or in Florida or, or where. You don't see any palm trees or something, so maybe not Florida, but it's, the foliage seems typically obviously Californian, which is where they shot it, but it doesn't indicate anything. So it's it's sort of a generic place, but you get the idea that the Moors is, a, is an exclusive community because he, what, where, the house, uh I call him Judge Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence uh, lives in, uh, is, is is really a mansion and it, it is a combination of house and laboratory, of course. Absolutely. But it looks like a southern plantation house. I mean, it's it's gigantic.
1: It does. Florida. I mean, right off the mean, you know Dr. Lawrence is a man of means. Is it the same house as As son of
0: Dracula, we need to look into that.
1: Interesting. I it don't looks, know. Because it, it, it's a house on the back lot
0: of Universal. I think it might be the house that's in the creature Ooh. walks among us. So maybe maybe this is
1: worth further investigation down the road when we when yeah. we visit
0: those movies. Let's make a mental um, note of
1: that. I wouldn't shock me in the least, you know, as we work the Universal, of course. I'm reminded of these, yeah, these columns in the front of the
0: house. And now because Universal uh had, had studio uh, sound stages, obviously, and then like most studios in Hollywood, it would have had a back lot that has city streets, urban areas, and then some houses and more. More rural kind of settings like that. Whoops, sorry, that was my heater. Um, that's
1: <laughs> staying, staying warm it in California.
0: Does, yeah, it does that. So anyway, so so uh, Dynamo Dan comes to stay with Dr. Lawrence and at Dr. Lawrence's house slash laboratory, and Dr. Lawrence is going to conduct some innocuous. Experiments on him, testing his resistance to electricity, uh, and hopefully to learn and to possibly help the world doing so. That's that's Dr. Lawrence's plan. Now, Dr. Lawrence has an assistant. Uh, what's what's the doc? So his
1: name is uh, Dr. Paul Regus. Paul, so, doctor, yes, Dr. Regis, yes. Yeah, I think, you know, on paper with both doctors, certainly Dr. Lawrence, you know, wants to work with Dan for, like I said, the betterment of mankind. And I think Dr. Regis does too, at least on the surface. Um, I think early on in his, maybe in, in Regis's research, you know, he too, with working with Lawrence, I think that they both were kind of after the same goal, you know, for positive, extend fo- people's life, extend I, you know, folks' health. But somewhere along the line, uh, you know, certainly throughout this movie, Regis was polluted by... His, I don't know if it's his success, but you see it so much in, you know, in the universal films with everyone starts out with the best of intentions right. and they just get power hungry or they kind of get lost, you know, within the, yes. the cobwebs of their mind and they, they start going down these dark paths. And that's, you know, as we'll get into it more, what kind of happens with Dr. Regis, where there's certainly a split in the road with you know, Dr. Lawrence and, and Regas' research.
0: Yeah, it's immediately evident when, when Dr. Lawrence returns and talks to Dr. Regas. Yeah, there's these two men who have done great things together. There's been a, a moral di- divergence between them. Dr. Lawrence has, has stayed on the true path of science, and Dr. Regas has become what obviously, from first glance, is a mad scientist now. I mean, he's obviously a mad scientist already in the making. And I think that's most clearly stated by their first conversation that they have Lionel Iwell's character keeps his goggles on the entire conversation. Right. <laughs> After his just, experiment, he doesn't lift up his goggles to talk to his boss. No. He just leaves his goggles and his, and his rubber gloves on. He's obviously started going in. And, and that's if we got want to get into Lionel Iwell for just a minute. I, I think that's Lionel Iwill's uh the charm and, and and gift that guy had was to play these completely corrupt, like morally corrupted characters in this and Mystery of the Wax Museum, Dr. X. Uh, and yet you never you enjoy hating the guy. I guess that's that's as trite a, a phrase as that is. I think I think loving loving to hate the villain is is very important in a movie like this.
1: He's easy to like, you know. He's a little bit charming. We talked about it, you know, in the last podcast with Lugosi and Dracula. And you know, where does Lugosi end and Dracula begin? I feel like yes. with that well, mischievous, you know, I don't know, shady is the right word, but kind of the personal life of that well, you know, he's yeah. uh, he was a very interesting man. And I don't want to get down, again this rabbit. Yeah, hole.
0: I guess I guess the the best way to say it would be, and, and anyone can read. Research this if they like and, and and i i liked it in this series we try not to get into everybody's personal dirty laundry that's right i just don't i don't think that is is part of what we're trying to do here right. um but we could say that Lionel was taste personal taste did not match society's norms of the there time perfect and 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 did lead to problems for him and you know <laughs> well not, said, not to make well a judgment said. you know as long as no one's hurt whatever i guess i don't know but uh but but yeah uh, and Oh, I forgot. I neglected to mention Murders in the Zoo is one of my favorite Lionel Abel villain parts. Anyway, he's like a Dwight Fry. I mean, he's really he's really this unacknowledged critical core element of Universal horror movie, along with Karloff, Lugosi, Cheney, Claude Rains—you know some of these second-tier guys like like Dwight Fry, uh, like Edward Van Sloan, and like Lionel
1: Atwell, uh are critical because without them, you don't have this rounded story. Oh, it's very true, yeah. With that one, and you said it—you said it perfectly. It is a morality tale, and you see it with a lot with that. Well, in the characters that he plays, I mean, going back, I mean, one of his probably most favorite, and you know, one of my favorite characters for him was Son of Frankenstein, of course. Yeah. I'm I mean, just Krog. fantastic, yeah. With Krog, I think going back just to my mind's eye, really one of the one of the only roles I remember at well being, and that's really not, you know, he's not compromised. And he's not, not really, villainous.
0: He's, he's he's a very normal guy in that ob- in that thing, and he and he plays that exceptionally well too. He plays the Bürgermeister in one of the other Frankenstein movies as well. Oh sure, Frankenstein quite, meets
1: Wolfman. Yep. Yeah, plays true, him quite well too. Yeah,
0: true. Um, yep the story moves forward. Dr Lawrence is going to uh, conduct these experiments on Dan and give him these these slightly increasing amounts of electricity to test his resistance to it. Dan settles into life you know in the at at the at the Moors. Dr Lawrence's daughter her name is June in the in the movie. Her uh, the actress's name is Ann Nagel. He he befriends her. I think the posters and and a lot of the info about this film seem to indicate that that there's this kind of hunchback of Notre Dame kind of affection thing between him and and June. But I don't I don't really see that in the in the film. I feel like it's a more platonic, you know, kind of friendly. Thing.
1: I do too. If anything, it seemed like June might have been maybe a little bit interested in him. I mean, this is before she yeah. got a little more serious with Frank the reporter. But yeah, I mean, right. the first glance would seem like she was almost I don't know, not never propositioned him, but you know, if there was any, you know, any affection from you know one character to the other, it was more with her. He was very right. much happy to be there, happy go lucky. Um, I mean, love playing with Corky the dog. I mean, how many just yeah. some fantastic we- scenes of of him and the dog? And you know, she met there was a great scene of you know when he first first arrived at the Moors and he's outside playing fetch with the dog. And, you know, June came up and, mm-hmm. and he's like, Oh, you know, Hey, great, great day, Miss June. And kind of walked off. And, you know, she's like kind of standing there holding her groceries. Like, you know, John, I wanted maybe a little bit more than that. Like, and, yeah. and you tell me how my hair looked or how pretty I look or right, right, you know, right. Dan was, and I think he's a little simple. I mean, not over the top, but I think, you know, just some of his, um, the vocabulary, he seems like kind of yes. a, a simpler, you know, maybe a little yeah. uneducated. Very gentleman, but very naive, you know. And I think June I, I think so.
0: Very, very, very childlike. Very childlike.
1: Way. Exactly. Um,
0: and and of course, you know, Lon Chaney Jr., who was born Craden Chaney, he was Lon Chaney's senior son, had a difficult relationship with between his mother and his father. Uh, was raised in quite a bit of chaos, and his father had died. And Universal had decided that. At some point that he was going to be the the next generation of you know horror uh, boogeyman monster uh, you know marquee actor for them they the understanding I have is they sort of suggested that he change his name to Lon Chaney Jr. which was again not his real name but he had broken out as far as film goes in a film version of John Steinbeck's of Mice and Men as as Lenny playing against Burgess Meredith's George uh, it's a great film if it's not a horror film but if anyone listening to this if you enjoy the old Universal movies and you haven't watched the Lon Chaney Burgess Meredith and men. Watch it. You will not be sorry. Great depiction of it. And of course, the Lenny character in that is, uh, again, a very simple person. Today, we would call him developing, developmentally disabled, I believe, who nevertheless has a temper that, and he's a very large man, and Curly finds out, within the context of the story, Curly finds out what happens if you if you cross him. <laughs> and Chaney was very proud of that role. He was very, to the end of his days, he was almost most proud of, of that performance. And I find his the Dynamo Dan character, Dan McCormick, that he plays in this movie, it's, with the the way it starts out, he's kind of a combination of, of the very likable Lawrence Talbot, he played in that same year later on in, in Wolfman and that Lenny character. He's he's so affable and big and friendly and cuddly. And I think at first you're kind of like, this is really he's really friendly. What's his? But I think it it's it's a conscious decision on his or the filmmaker's part to contrast that against where he goes in the film. He goes to, he turns into this hollow shell of a of a man, and all the all the good and 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 the gentleness is taken away from him in the process of this film. And and so his character goes on that journey. So the fact that he starts as such a nice, likable fella really drives home the tragedy that befalls his character. And I, and so I think it's a great choice. And it's and and he just seems like someone, yeah, you'd like to
1: hang out with and have a beer with and have pet your dog, right? It creates such a nice arc. And you really have to do that. And that's just good storytelling, right? I mean, you start yeah. with, and I'm so glad you mentioned Mice and Men. I mean, only two years before this film, yeah, played the part mm-hmm. of Lenny. And I thought the exact same thing as I'm watching this film. It is that very similar, just that, again, the, the naivete, but gentle character that ultimately to make the movie movie, work the way it has to do, has to you know, get on this journey where he's going to change. And that is part of the character arc. And ultimately, we'll get to the end of this movie, but not so much through words. It's very Frankenstein monster-like, but yes. you can see, you know, the last few minutes of the movie, he gets very sympathetic, you know, when he starts, just the hand motions, again, brings me back. It's not just so much the electricity, but the acting through the movements and the facial features of Chaney going back to, you know, Kalaf as the monster that, yes. you know, becomes as sympathetic. All of these things that are happening to him, Yes, he's done evil things, but you know, it's truly no fault of his own. And, you know, we can get right into it. I think, you know, where we start seeing kind of a, a branch off and seeing some of the, the issues happening with the Dan McCormick character is he's at the Moors. Of course, Dr. Lawrence is giving him you know the low doses to try to figure out exactly why is Dan immune? He wants to figure out, you know, whatever it is, something in the blood, something in his DNA to help help other folks and prepare for health reasons.
0: He, and he, um, he says to how many thousands of people die by electrocution every year and possibly they can find a way to to make them immune or make them safe from that. And he has a very noble goal. Uh, Lionel Ackwell's Car- character's goal, he states it very early in the film. And, and it's it's this very disturbing idea of, I mean, he says it right off the, the bat, like he wants to create a new race of men. So there's this terrifying eugenic thing going on with him that that runs through a lot of the the bad, evil characters within this era of universal films. This, uh, obviously what was going on in the world at this time. This is 1941. I believe this film came out before we entered the war. In December, I, I would imagine it did, but there at this time, there's obviously still a, there's a growing threat in Europe. Everyone in America has, has heard Adolf Hitler on the radio; uh, they've heard the translations what he's saying: this master race thing, this this Third Reich, and it's a terrifying time in America. Many Americans are absolutely convinced that we need to enter the war and protect because London's been being bombed and everything. Um, but America still has this isolationist policy, and and that that is a matter bes- aside from what we're discussing here. You start. Definitely seeing writers in America imprint on on what what is going on in Europe and using it to color their villains with. and and Adwool's, Dr. Uh, what's his name? Sorry. Regus. And Regus's speech at the beginning of the movie, when he first is talking with Dr. Lawrence is very evident of this idea of, he wants to be able to control people. He wants to create an army of people dependent upon electricity so that he can control them. His, and, and his, what he wants to do frightens Dr. Lawrence. And I guess it's only because of their shared respect for each other and the, and the work they've done that Lawrence, I guess, permits him to stay around because this seems like something you would not want living in your
1: household. Certainly not. Not with you, daughter not too far away but yeah there's this right. element of you know paranoia with with Regis. I think that's a super point being being a writer universe, any writers of this time pre-world war ii and like you yeah. said the, the Hitler I mean how could you not be you know have some some level of paranoia so yeah I mean Regis's mind he's thinking with enough you know shocks of electricity and it's, it's, it's a little bit of a weak weak storyline or a weak motive but you know we're gonna go with it with yeah. enough with, with enough electrical current, you basically make people, you know, almost, I don't want to say addicted, but you almost, you know, wiping out the character, you almost wiping their mind out. So they become, exactly. and at some point he calls them walking shells, waiting for life, you know, without electricity, right. these men, I'm going to create a walking shells waiting for life. So thro- I mean, this kind of re- reaches Terrible. the idea that over the course of three, four, five, six cycles of experiments, he's going to wipe out these, you know, men and presumably women too, that have high tolerance for electricity and basically make them the, his slave. His, his, uh, we could we call them electro-zombies kind of. Electro-zombies yeah, for whatever. Yeah. And I'm not sure exactly what his purposes are. I don't think it really states specifically why he wants this army. And maybe to your point, Jim, maybe it's just this paranoia. Yeah, or, or I mean, he
0: obviously has this dose of megalomania in him, the strain of megalomania uh, that I, I think he wants the power. He wants that power to control people. I, I think it's like that, the the fall from grace is for his character is that i think i think he wants to do this for noble purposes this, this army could protect people this army could you know get things done but he falls into again the megalomania of this army could serve me this army could take care of obstacles in my way and sure enough, uh, when Dr. Lawrence goes uh, out of town for a conference, Dan is left to Dr. Riggs's experiments. Dr. Riggs is supposed to continue Dr. Lawrence's experiments, gradually increasing the dosage, gradually increasing the dosage. And the first time he gets Dan in the chair or in the, on the table, he he just cranks it up to eleven and right. <laughs> just just inundates the poor guy with electricity. And the effects are evident very quickly. When Dan comes out of the of the thing and and, and sees June, he's already it's already taken a lot of. Of his his soul and, and personality and spunk out of him. Corky runs away
1: from him most notably which is a real telling sign obviously. Filmmakers, the writers did such a good job again going back to Dan's character arc. You know, this this affection and the you know the relationship between Dan and Corky. I mean, Dan <clears> would, <throat> would sit at a chair and Corky would run right up to him and lick his hand and they were the best of friends but like you said, yeah. yeah, after that first cycle of experiments where he just got inundated by Regis's pulse of electricity, he's a changed man. I mean, falls unconscious on the table. I think, it, you know, some earlier scenes when it was Lawrence conducting the electricity. or I'm sorry, conducting the experiments. He's like, Oh, I just, you know, my hands tickle, or you know, it right. was almost like he, you know, never felt the thing. It was like a feather, you know, brushing against his skin. But you know, now with Lawrence out of town, Regis has hands on the controls. And exactly. um, you know, he's yeah. probably under the timestamp. I don't know how long Lawrence was away for, maybe a week or two, but you know, I know he's I got a kind so of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's got a short window to complete his personal, you know, experiment. So he is just absolutely abusing Dan with electricity. And to your point, I mean, his facial features change, his whole body language changes.
0: Yeah. And Cheney does this very well. He, he, you know, he, he goes from this, this big brawly. I mean, Cheney was six foot two. He was a, he was a really big guy for the era. And that benefited in a lot of these roles where he had to play this, this big hulking. But but friendly guy. And I think that went to the core of who he was at that time. As the, as the experiments go on, he, that changes and he, he slumps and he, he his face changes. It it, it hollows out, it falls. And I think that's that's a lot of probably Jack Pierce's makeup involved in that uh, and probably lighting. They, they do a really great job of it. It's it's an interesting, and again, not to get into the, the actor's personal lives, but obviously in later life, Cheney Jr. had a, a, a struggle with alcoholism that lasts quite a long time and and took its toll on him i guess it's a sort of a sad sadly prescient thing that that this film is about a character who suddenly becomes addicted to this thing and it does change who he is so so again it's that thing we talk about with with lugosi where it's hard to there's a point where the the character and the and the actor playing them tend to tend to merge and for good or ill maybe that's always just maybe that's the sign of maybe that's why these films last and resonate is there's this humanity in the character that that it extends past the, the
1: the film. It affects people, and people. Remember it. Obviously his addiction to the electricity caused his death. Not to fast forward too much in the film, but you know, obviously we'll get there at some point. Dan, you know, succumbed to this illness. And of course, you know, and to your point, Cheney and his personal life succumbed to you know some of his personal demons. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's definitely, you know, some some biographical um you know things going on here, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I don't know what Dr. Regis's plan is for when Dr. Lawrence comes back. Uh, um because Dr. Lawrence eventually does come back and his daughter June is saying, like, I'm worried about Dan. he doesn't doesn't look good. And Dr. Dr. Lawrence is like, well, you know, let's see him. And 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 Dan comes in and Dan does not look good. And Dan looks at his food and, and almost retches, and, and has to leave, which which makes Dr. Lawrence seek out Dr. Regis and and ask him. Dr. Regis has has created a false set of, of notes of the experiments that wherein the experiments would have followed Dr. Lawrence's instructions. He left when he was gone, but Dr. Regis obviously has a secret notebook that has all his actual experience and we, we during the experience we see him writing in it of course and you know massive dosage he is now t- totally dependent on electricity and and all that all that mad scientist uh, stuff uh villains who have the need to chronicle their misdeeds is always an interesting thing uh you do see it with the nazis the nazis kept incredibly detailed accounts of the atrocities they committed it's it's i don't know what the pathology of that is but dr regas at least obviously thinks he's doing something amazing and this should be chronicled And there he's he's got his secret notebook where he's writing.
1: yeah to your point before we before you move on past that dinner scene so again going back this is you know lawrence yeah. talked to lawrence's probably first you know meal coming back home and obviously june his his daughter is you know very very concerned about dan and dan walks in slumped over and ashen skin and you know refuses to eat and you know ends up leaving dan leaves the dinner table and june looks. At her dad, and he's like, You know, dad, what do you think? He's like, Nah, he'll be fine. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll probably be okay. Probably but just like, under the weather, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <he> probably, <laughs> you know, maybe it's the
0: flu or he's tired. It's like, Good Lord, doctor. And you, you wonder know. if there's this thing of like, Well, uh, yeah, now that that thing in Germany will probably work itself out. <laughs> it, 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 it's, I swear to got there's a just this parallel going on between I because because the studios could not, uh, there was there was sort of a um a moratorium on making topical films about what was going on in Germany. I think Warner Brothers made Miss Miniver, which was set in a bombed out uh, London, I believe, uh, around this time and got Death threats from German American uh, because they were casting the Germans in a negative light. you have to you have to put yourself back in the time period where uh, not to distract too much into the current events of the film, but you have to put yourself back in a, in a time where a lot of Americans weren't totally aware of what was going on over o- across the Atlantic. but the film industry being having a large Jewish population of people who were a family back home and stuff who were, currently fleeing what was going on. You could argue that some of the film filmmakers, film producers, studios, studio heads had a very good idea of what was happening in Europe at the time and were frustrated by the inaction of America at, up to that point, up until the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December. So it is just this interesting thing of like uh, people's ability to always shrug off what's right in front of them, you know, a danger or a, or a tragedy right in front of them and go, well, no, it'll it'll probably be okay. And this is what we see with with Dr. Lawrence right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe he was just, I'm sure, I don't know if it was jet lag, or, you know, he seemed up, he clearly tired. He he'd been gone a while, and yeah. I'm sure he just wanted to eat his supper and put on his slippers exactly. and get in his favorite right. robe, smoke his Go, pipe, and he and he and he does that. He does that, and he
0: goes up to his room, <laughs> right. That night, and um, and June goes out on her date with her her sweetie. With Mark Adams uh, is a reporter who has who was who covered the original bus accident, which killed everyone except for Dan. And Mark has been hanging out at the Moors for some reason, convinced there's this story about what Dr. Lawrence is doing with Dan. And I think his chasing the stories turns into him chasing June pretty quickly. Uh, and the and these two, despite some initial resistance on June's part, uh, these two become an item, and and he finally asks her out. So this
1: this is the critical night here. Dr. Lawrence goes goes upstairs to bed. June goes out on a date with Mark. It seemed to happen very quick. And I, I do have to say, I mean, the characters for them, the, I would say some of the supporting Characters here are a bit bland. I did like Frank's his acting. I, I like Mark, Mark Adams, yeah. the reporters. You know, definitely kind of you know spunky. You know, I don't know. He's a lot of bravado, a lot of machismo. But you know, certainly he's pursuing his girl. He you know, obviously likes mm-hmm. likes June. He's trying to be you know as respectful as he can. But you know, you still you see that you know some rough, a little bit of a rough, rough edge. You know, trying to be the gentleman against maybe his better nature. But I, yeah. I, well, I liked he, him as a character. I thought he was kind of fun.
0: He's dating above his class here. And- and, That's right and I think it, it's difficult for a lot of maybe maybe it's not for like modern Americans to realize that there was sort of still this upper class lower class thing in America even up until the 40s where you know dr. Lawrence and and his daughter lived in this nice mansion and they you know have this nice thing. Mark and and Dan McCormick are not of that social class and this was an era where those social classes did not often mix uh, the working class and then the the upper class but but yeah so but Mark triumphs obviously through through determination and Anne goes out uh, with them but of course she's thinking of Dan, the entire
1: time Thinking <laughs> of she's, poor worried, dan. she's worried about dan she's worried about her dad yeah not certainly not in a romantic way at all she is concerned i mean she knows yes. god is telling her something is wrong and knows and just her you know with with regis and frank too i mean at some point they know just they're just instinctually they know something is off and they just yeah. can't place it and like you said and for,
0: for some reason no one suspects that dr regis might be up to something right he's obviously
1: obviously like you said, cuts the date short. He has, they have tickets, expensive tickets will yeah. report his salary or, you know, something along those lines. What, what, what do you say? These were two bucks a pop or something so he had some big plans and they had a big night ahead of them and um so she before they go to the show she wants to go back and just make sure everything is okay so she can enjoy herself yeah Um, and then
0: she says then we'll then we'll go out and i'm all yours and he's gonna you know tell her how he feels and she's ready to hear it you know she she's on board with him but she she has these concerns that she wants to have a leave first and so they they go back
1: Yep, clearly i mean just a good you know good character person worried about her dad worried about dan so nothing personal against mr reporter man whatsoever just you Know, take me home let me double check and we're gonna have a great time so yeah. they get home find dan just increasingly sick and ill well this is this is the this is the point where where dr lawrence hears
0: the 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 generators and the electrical things happening and goes down and finds am i
1: remembering this right he he finds dan being juiced up by Riga. correct no the electrical and you can see him and i there's definitely some shots back from frankenstein the the actual
0: devices and, yes and uh, Tesla yeah.
1: coils and everything. I mean, there's a couple. I think I want to say there's definitely something on A Bride of Brighter Frankenstein. There's a shot from the original Frankenstein, but yeah, the old Tesla coils and um, the equipment. Yeah. So you're absolutely That's right. He's in bed, tired and whatnot. Comes downstairs and finds Regis in full-blown mad scientist mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Regus...
0: Busted six Dan on him. So Dan now has has succumbed to the electrical addiction, obeys his rules and, and kills Dr. Lawrence. Can we mention just what a
1: great glowing face that uh Dan yeah. McCormick has? Yeah, would yeah. You-
0: this would have been this would have been very difficult to do at that point. I, I want to say it had, I think they might have used some kind of makeup on him. There might have been a certain color that would have assisted this chemical process. But what you're looking at is really a and, and obviously this is far long, long, long before any kind of digital technology, this would have been a, a cell animation uh, effect that would have been placed over launching junior's face and as he moves or the camera moves through space that effect has to follow him and, and follow the shape of his head this pulsating glow that covers his face so this would have been a laborious time-consuming and and honestly very might have been one of the more expensive parts of the film was just doing these seven or eight shots they had of, of his face glowing like and his right.
1: hands and anything exposed glow absolutely and you know for those and I'm sure we'll cover this film at some point too but the invisible ray starring mm-hmm. you know of course, Boris Karloff and um, yes. Lugosi with some very similar effects. Certainly not done. I think they had, you know, by this point, this is probably five or six years after Invisible Ray had kind of fine-tuned their craft a little bit. I think um, so, yeah, yeah.
0: This is this is done pretty well.
1: It is, for um, the most part, yeah. His hands are glowing. At pretty much any skin that's exposed it, you know, his hands, glowing, you know, head and the face. And yeah. yeah, you're right. If you find some still photographs of this film, Cheney clearly has some kind of makeup on.
0: Yeah, I mean, he has this shrunken, more skull like ghastly uh, ghoul makeup on um, that, that that shrinks his lip down and, and really uh, does a great job. And I, I think they m- they must his hair up a little bit and it just gives him this thing. But I, this is the thing about this film I love is that it, Universal, when they did stuff like the Invisible Ray, like this, things that bordered on sci-fi, they they managed to keep this gothic quality to the sci-fi uh the technology was never that clean the machines were always kind of older and 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 so they looked like they were self-fabricated like whoever it was had, and made them themselves you never get into this this shiny chromey uh sci-fi that you get into later in the 50s with you know a lot of sp- movies about outer space and right there's always this used beat down version of sci-fi that, that universal did and and it's the one i always respond
1: to i just the old-fashioned kind of thing it's, it looks really cool yeah um, it's it, i'm sorry yeah just to I'm that point real quick, Jim, it is definitely an interesting time in filmmaking. You can see, you know, more and more reporters think at this point, you know, like the Basil Rasp, rathbone sherlock holmes had really taken off and become very very popular so you're seeing a lot of you know these movies in the the 40s they become like a a, almost a crime drama where you you know every movie has some you know has some report at least one reporter you know kind of nosing around and trying to find clues and like some sci-fi you've got the gothic horror so really just a mishmash of a lot of things that are just hot at the time certainly
0: you know the the other side of the that Universal was very successful at starting around this time was the noir films. And there definitely was started to become a lot of cross-pollinization between horror and noir in this era. And I think the noir helped because any, any anything about detectives or investigations or whatever was basically it involved actors wearing fedoras standing in rooms <laughs> talking. So it, that what we talk about, about in the earlier 30 film, 30 films, like the, the parlor drama elements of say Dracula They turned into more like hard-boiled noir, you know, you know, know, detective drama in this, and that's how they balance the budget and keep the keep the story full and lively and you see it in in a lot of films that that follow up after this including a film we'll be talking about called house of horrors which is really kind of a noir mystery that involves a slightly monstrous character
1: the fedora the notepad and you've got yourself yeah. a makeshift journalist who's out who's gonna you Why? know not only um you know win the girl's heart but you know gonna figure out what's what's going on and, yeah he's, um, he's out he's after the solution so so june and mark come home Find the
0: judge or I'm sorry, I keep calling the judge that uh, Dr. Lawrence dead because he's totally under blind eye will sway. Dan confesses. Dr. Regis tells Dan, you killed him. You killed him. Dan just repeats. I killed him. I killed him.
1: Right. Knows. I mean, at confesses. this point, yeah, right. Regis knows the police are gonna be involved at some point. I mean, obviously there's a there's a death here. There's a this very prominent doctor is dead in his home. So of course there's gonna be some police investigation. investigation. So, you know, at this point Dan is so far gone that, you know, Doctor Regis says, you know, when the police come, you you did it. You murdered you murdered Doctor Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And technically he did, but you know Technically
0: so- he did, yeah, under under uh, obviously Dr. Regis' influence. But influence so, so, right. so Dan confesses, and then we have another one of these, these, the swirly newspaper montage things about how <laughs> you know he he's self-confessed. He's going to be uh, convicted. He is convicted in a court of law. Even though June goes and speaks to the district attorney on his behalf, June is it, June is really the detective in this story. It's interesting. Mark is following her lead but june you know as as a, as a female protagonist is it's an interesting like an Nagel's character really is the one who affects things in
1: this in this film like she she's a protagonist on her own yeah. quest no she's strong and very very proactive i mean she's on mm-hmm. a date and they've got you know going back to her date with mark you know they got solid plans and he's like oh you know you don't really want to go back to you we? we've got all these things and she's stern take me out you know i'll be us for the night take me back <laughs> home very strong <laughs> she strong plays will- the power card she's like nothing is happening on this date until i to this. <laughs> but so very strong understand very strong will, little bit i mean how nice is that to start you know see a female character yes. in these in these movies you know for sure that, that is something besides a, a pretty girl dressed in a vera west gown right right uh, uh
0: yeah so so they so dan is tried convicted and sent sentenced to die in the electric chair and there's a part of me that feels like perhaps almost the entire point of making this movie was to get to a point where you had a character sentenced to be electrocuted in the electric chair and it just makes him more powerful. I feel like you could you could backwards engineer this whole story from the from someone having that idea of like what if they electrocuted a guy and it just made him stronger. And then everything else is retroactively, you know, kind of flawed yeah. it out to get to this point because it's an amazing scene where it's something right and suddenly we are back in Frankenstein territory where they are like the reporters are on the on the phones outside the execution chamber they're like they're giving him more votes he he's not dying and then they're back like he strangled a guard and the next thing you know he bursts open the door and he grabs the the guards and knocks him down you know and and he's this he's this juggernaut now he's this super powered you know they, they juiced him up and he is he's now uh dynamo Dan now is just this unstoppable walking death machine.
1: I mean, yeah. what a great concept. You have somebody who is not susceptible to electric <laughs> to an electric charge. What happens right. when you put them in an electric chair? And yeah, they become, yeah. like you said, the Frankenstein monster, mindless beast. They just make them more powerful. And it, and it becomes the sort of, as we get into Frankenstein
0: meets the Wolfman and House of Frankenstein and House Dracula, it becomes the derigger idea of the Frankenstein monsters. Every time they try to kill him with electricity, they just make him stronger. It's just, just this idea of like everything you try and do just backfires and, and makes your enemy the more dangerous.
1: That's right. And that's, that's exactly that's, uh, what happens. So. He hits him three times with the juice, comes out and um kills a guy and actually takes the warden. So how he escapes the jail is take right. you know takes the warden hostage. And you I mean of course there's no weapon, there's nothing. He's using his electrical power. I mean the warden knows that if he disobeys and all he needs or all you know Dan would need to do is get close and touch touch the warden to, to kill him. Right. So right. You know, he, he, he himself
0: escaped. is now a lethal weapon. So there he, we go. He is a
1: lethal weapon. Um you know doesn't need a knife, doesn't need anything. So he is the lethal weapon, and ushers the warden out. Ultimately, escapes the jail to not so much freedom, but you know at least he's out of the jail cell. The, the, to the countryside or wherever the countryside. They,
0: they, they're seeing him, and and there's a there's a report that he's headed towards the moors, I believe. Him becoming a little bit more
1: sympathetic, you know, you can see his and certainly the makeup, you know, layered more with like the skeletal lines and he's he's yes. aging he's aging yes. just the the, yeah. the the electricity is is aging him by the second it seems it it is, it
0: is killing him you realize him. but right. but not in in the way that it, it would a normal person it, it's it's poisoning you know Everything about him that's that's
1: human, and and that's all.
0: You, but, know, you know, there's a kind
1: of... there's one point as a carriage goes by, and it again brings me right back to the Frankenstein monster, where he doesn't so much attack the carriage or the people. Yeah. you know, you see the, his the open hands, like, and he's just kind of waving his hand slowly, like Frankenstein in the in the original film. Right. Oh yeah. Help me. Can you? Is there anything you can do to help me? And it, again, it becomes that sympathetic character. It's a very Frankenstein scene, including the fact that he's this super powered
0: electric dynamo man, and he runs across the people. Like I I don't know if it, it's hard to tell if they're people on a hayride or if they're like migrant workers just go you know but they're in, they're in a horse drawn carriage so the the duality of the the technology versus the antiquated kind of setting is it's hilarious and fun and it's one of the things I just you know always get a kick out about these films uh yeah and then he gosh it, the 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 end of the movie now I'm realizing like it's a it's a blur for me he he runs into a, a parked car as well right and he electrocutes the car. He
1: does. Electrocutes. I think there's just people, you know, parking or parked in a car and, you know, they're electrocuted and ultimately walks through a field and gets tangled up in barbed wire so his skin right. is exposed because of the wire and um, it's just kind of a great scene the camera pans way back to Dan locked in and you know almost being you know I don't want to say choked but it wasn't around his neck but wrapped in all this barbed wire and the electricity yeah. was just shooting out of him at just an alarming rate and draining from him yeah, and draining from him and then ultimately ultimately passes away and just a great 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 well, well, we, scene. well we skipped
0: well, we skipped past because he gets back to the moors
1: Oh, of course yes obviously take,
0: take us back to yeah. the moors yes there is a final confrontation with Lionel Atwo who I, I'm this would be one of the films where I, I just the, there's a there's a villain that you're you've just kind of been waiting for an hour for this guy to die now and you're just kind of like you know what's going to happen and you're just you're you, but you're invested in the story and, and it's interesting but you're also kind of checking your watch like it's time for that guy to pay for what he's done to this guy and he does and and it's it might be my only I don't want to I, I don't want to say this like in a way that makes me seem seem callous or bloodthirsty but but you kind of wanted to see Chaney Jr. like pick him up or throw him or choke him or or something and Stuff. And Lionel Atwell's character instead, Dr. Regas runs into a closet to try and hide, grabs the doorknob to close it. Chaney grabs the doorknob on the other side and it electrocutes Atwell and, and Atwell dies.
1: Yeah, no, and I don't think that's wrong, Jim. I mean, you wanted something, you know, a really personal death. It- yeah, maybe it's not know? satisfying enough. It's not um, satisfying, right? Um, this,
0: this, this would be after. I'm sorry, we're jumping all over the place. Uh, June gets back to the house first and finds Doctor Regis's diary. So this is the point where uh, he he catches her reading his diary. She now finally knows that. It's his fault. He's the call. He's the, the real villain behind Dan. Dan's the innocent pawn in, in what he's trying to do. And Dr. Regis turns his focus on her. He's gonna make her like Dan. So so she's gonna be the next step in his plan. So you're right. He he's his plan is not just to to make men do what he wants, it's also to make women do what he wants, which which has a, a different sinister connotation, obviously.
1: Anything he wanted to do for society, any, you know, goodwill, um, you know, clearly it's almost, you know, within 10 minutes of the movie, it, it's pretty clear that he is, you know, sinister. Anything that he's yeah. working on with his electricity and his experiments, certainly not the betterment of, of man. And it, yeah, that's extremely ominous. His own, that's own, ominous. Um, his own you know, power, finally, yes, 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 Yeah, locks um, June up on the table. Yeah, he, I mean, Dan comes out and chases him back into the closet. And I'm with you. I think a fulfilling death, like um, I always go back to the death in um, Listen, Son of Franks It might have been House of Frank it was House of Frankenstein where he, the monster picks up the hunchback and just and throws him through that window and he goes sliding down the, the rooftop. Just yes. a fantastic scene. That's that. There's, there's a death. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a death. And you know, that wasn't even as personal as this could have been, but. Or, yeah. or even the end of Bride
0: where he's like, you, you live. He's like, you stay.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> we belong dead.
0: You know, that, the, the Thessinger uh, death in that. I, yeah. There's just a sort of a Pope or poetic Justification there, but it is what it is. He 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 kills Doctor Regis, and then he follows proper monster etiquette by taking Anne and picking her up and carrying her
1: uh, out the door. <laughs> Yeah. Puts on some gloves. He's, he's all insulated. That's right. Not going to harm June whatsoever. And yeah. Picks her up and they start walking out the door. We're kind of not sure what his plan for that is really. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, just uh, at this point, I mean, he's got some humanity. I mean, I think he's getting some humanity back. I mean, clearly he's not trying to kill June. No. um, Yeah. What his motives are. It's a good question. Uh, That's something I'm sure we could debate for for hours. (laughs) But the police follow him. They, they chase him through a field. He's carrying Anne,
0: carrying June. Um, this is part where we see he ends up getting caught on the barbed wire fence. And so of all things, the bullets... The electric chair, nothing can stop this guy, and then he gets caught on some barbed wire, and he makes a he makes a connection. He's grounded now, and it, the barbed wire cuts through his suit, gets to his bare skin, and the electricity that's now is the only thing keeping him alive uh, runs out into into the fence and d- dissipates, and he loses all his his uh, his electricity, and with it, he he dies. Um, and and June is safe, obviously, and we get to the just the one of the saddest scenes in any Universal. Horror film I've ever seen is is now finally the dog shows up again and comes and licks his hand and, and sits next oh. to him and his old friend that he lost and it's it's gut wrenching it's so it really it's such is. a tragic death. Uh, you feel so bad for this guy who just, you know, didn't have a, a malicious bone in his body and was manipulated and, and mutated into into something he wasn't. And it's really, I guess it's why this film just, again, for such a cheap film and, and a film with with evident gaps and flaws in
1: it, it punches way above its weight, right? It does. I mean, again, absolutely right. No, I mean, it's so emotional. And again, it goes back to the acting and doing so, so much with so little. I mean, the sets really aren't that minimal. Yeah. Extravagant. They're very, very minimal. Like you said there's some great shots of really like just dan's death scene the way right. the camera pans back and you just see this sprawling electrified fence and just yeah. literally losing his life in existence through the electricity exactly. um the being dispersed from his body but yeah. yeah i mean what a touching ending i mean universal yeah. I mean, there's a couple of films that obviously have pretty good endings but for the most part the monster movies they end in you know they're kind of flat but not this one this one is a very and it, maybe it's just because you and i are mutual animal lovers and i think
0: so yeah because that that that's what gets to me too i i I hadn't watched the film in a long
1: time. I'm watching it, going
0: like, he doesn't right. kill the dog, does he? Couldn't remember. I was like, oh, please don't. What is
1: it? Is yeah. You know, this this definitely pulls at your heart, star tugs at your heartstrings. But it, you know, at least it, it goes to you know Dan is now Dan. Obviously, he's you know passed away. But you know, he's now I guess human, I would say quote unquote human Dan and you know Corky's right. friend again. And yeah, you know, he's oh, back
0: to who he was. Yeah, back to he, who he was. Yeah, he regains his Darth Vader becomes Anakin Skywalker. That's again. right. It's that it's the whole thing. Yeah. Yep. And I think th- this is the thing for me that sets. Uh, Universal apart from um, their peers on other studios and, and the horror movies they made and even a lot of more recent films is there in so many cases there's there's a there's an underlying humanity and an underlying tragedy to most of universals from the Phantom of the Opera through the Wolfman obviously Frankenstein, man-made monster, even even uh, the Invisible Man, the circumstances turned these these humans into what they become. And while they go on and they commit heinous things, there's still that nugget of a person left within them. And so you can still... If not sympathize, you can empathize, and just makes for it makes you engage. And I and again, I think it's just why these films have lasted so long and in in popularity and and within the, the the zeitgeist of of our culture.
1: You know, one thing that Universal's always gotten you know right is like you said that humanity. Call monster a monster, but you know, like you said, I mean, maybe besides Dracula, and you know, I mean, Dracula Who, who's know, just a douche. Yeah, it just. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, going back but to except dry, for that guy, yeah. But you know, even just the, his line, you know, to be dead, to be
0: truly dead. There, oh, there is still some because he was a man once, and maybe he didn't mean to become what he became. Maybe something turned him into this. You, you, we don't. But know. So you'd have
1: just, to, you'd have to dig. But I think, yeah, the only part of humanity, maybe, is you know, to be truly dead. That must be glorious. So right. obviously, he knows he's you know this deformed. Creature, he's cursed to be this thing thing and, you know, and, he's this thing and maybe he embraces you know, it a little
0: too much but yeah you know just but, to um, die
1: and be truly dead that must be glorious so but yes. you know universal truly did a, did a great great job with their um you know just the characters call them monsters if you will I mean, frankenstein right. monster i mean clearly that you know part of the most the, the monster in those movies is you know this doctor the doctor frankenstein dr henry frankenstein who mm. interfered in uh you know forces of god and nature that were beyond his control and um you know was very you know irresponsible what's
0: the, yeah what what's the what's the meme that says uh, intelligence is, is knowing that Frankenstein is the doctor, not the monster. Wisdom is knowing that right. Frankenstein, the doctor actually is the monster. Or some, it goes something like that. Yes. Yep. That's fantastic. That's, that's the thing. So Yeah. True. But so that's, that was man-made monster. 1941, Lon Chaney Jr.'s uh, vehicle and, and George Wagner that propelled them to, I think based on the success of this film, you know, despite its small budget, Universal gave them the Wolfman, you know, our, our, our culture changed just a tiny bit because of that because of the impact of of that and the, the legacy that it cre- started creating thanks to this little film beyond the Wolfman it also cemented Lon Chaney Jr.'s status as as a maestro of horror as well as, as one of the enduring characters of, of you know 20th century horror and uh, and we're all the better for it just from from everything from this to back to Mice and Men to the Wolfman to we'll, we'll give him Son of Dracula all the way up to Spider-Babe um, there you go
1: yeah I mean who played Sympathy and who played tragic better than yeah.
0: uh, better than Chaney and Chaney and I don't know if that was all acting i think a lot of that was just partially who he was i think he brought something kind of very special and very unique very different from carloff and lugosi and reigns yes. and, and and everyone else he had his own thing and
1: yeah anyway well this has been a lot of fun and um yeah. yeah i hope everyone listening if you haven't seen man-made monster give it give it a shot and have you know come in with an open mind and you know it's not going to be frankenstein it may not be dracula but it has its charm and you know looking at or watching you know cheney in his first horror role and um you know seeing what folks can do with you know very limited budgets you you know, this yep. film only was cost $86,000, which was the cheapest film at the time. So, you know, as an independent filmmaker or, you know, just having that as respect. A, as a guy who makes small budget horror
0: films, this this is a film I look at and go like, look at what they did with what they had. Yeah, exactly. It, it exactly. Performance, good writing, empathy, you know, just a really solid, base,
1: basic story. Sometimes it's all you need. That's all you need. Absolutely. Well, thank right. you so much for joining me again, Jim. This has been a lot of fun. And um, this, this has been great. Thank you. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon. Thank
0: you for listening to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Boole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Cat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast.